I'm sharing with you today the 2022 Toy Hall of Fame finalists. Oh, okay. Here are some of the top toys for this year as a finalist to go in the Toy Hall of Fame. Bingo. Is that a toy? Like that? I mean, it's a game. It's a game, right? Still, I equate that to smoking and oxygen tanks. But light bright. Okay, yeah, I'm in on that. Nerf, Nerf toys, right? Yeah, just as a cat, the whole thing. Like I'm not in for the newer stuff, but like the original Nerf, like football or something. Sure. But here's one that perplexes me: the pinata. Is that a toy? I mean, kind of a game, I guess, sort of. Kinda seems like that would be more of a uh, inductee to the traditions Hall of Fame. I don't see it as a toy. You only play it once, right? And then everything comes out of it. All the candy. That didn't make a lot of sense. I mean, that's even gambling. We're inducting gambling into the Toy Hall of Fame next year. It'll be blackjack. <laughs> Welcome to Touchpoint a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to Touchpoint. Welcome to episode number 297. That's right, Chris. We are weeks away from episode 300, which is kind of hard to believe. We got to do something really special, aren't we? Going to do something? Yeah, we should think about that now that we're just... <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we'll play bingo or pinata or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, welcome one and all. That's Chris Boyer. I am Reed Smith. Thanks for joining us. If you're uh, returning for another episode, uh, welcome back. Quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health. Touchpoint.health houses all of our episodes, all 297 of them, plus a number of other great topics and shows and show hosts and types of things you can dig into. While you're there, you'll notice up in the top navigation, something called the TPS report. Give us your name and your email address. We will send you one, exactly one email each week with five articles to start your week. And I uh, would love for you to, to sign up and uh, check out the website. So again, we'll pause here, let you jump on your digital device of choice, navigate over to touchpoint.health, and we will see you back in just a minute. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose Reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you.
So last week I was at Shushmed Read, and I spoke on a panel that focused on developing digital ways to meet the evolving needs of the quote-unquote post-pandemic healthcare consumer. That was one of the many different topics that we were talking about. Check last week's episode to get some of the other top-line you know, topics that were discussed. But a big part of that panel session was using consumer research to help understand the biggest challenges that people have when accessing our healthcare. And not surprisingly, one of the biggest things, the biggest drivers, needs, whatever it might be, was sort of this over-indexing on this concept of convenience. You know, like getting people to access their appointments, making it easier to get their patient records, all of those sorts of things. Yeah, It's not surprising that's a big need. I think you feel that too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, convenience and being consumer-centric is something we've talked about and continue to talk about. Um, but uh, again, I, we do it, but I, I still don't think we've quite shifted all the way to thinking about it in that way. So again, we think about like, oh, we need to have a better way for people to you know, search for a physician. Well, maybe they're not looking for a physician, though. You know, on the journey or kind of the pathway to some of these transactional items, I think make some assumptions still on the expectation. It still is a big need as it relates to realistically how people communicate with us, interact with us, you know, that, that kind of thing. This keeps coming up top of mind. And I think that facing some of the other challenges that we are, workforce shortages and trying to bring people back to care, this whole concept of trying to get an appointment being one of the biggest convenience inhibitors to the overall experience is top of mind to us as we kind of work through work through these challenges at our health systems. And it's maybe coincidental, but just this last week, there was an article published about a study around the average patient appointment wait time. And that's probably why this is such a big need. So why don't we start first re-talking about that article? And I think we'll get to some some reasoning around like kind of what you can do and, and how to combat some of this, because I think that is where you know, we're talking about convenient. Well, having to wait a super long time is not terribly convenient. So I think this uh, kind of paints the picture of where we are today. And, and again, it goes back to why it is such a big need. So, all right, here we go. We're going to jump in. This is, uh, we found uh, the information over patientengagementhit.com, uh, our friends, our friends over there. But anyway, <laughs> it's uh, a lot of data from Merritt Hawkins, which is uh, um, a great uh, organization in the space. So Average appointment wait time up 8% since 2017, 24% since 2004. And, and maybe that doesn't sound like that big of a deal, right? Like, oh, it's only up 8% since 2017. Like that doesn't seem like a huge number, right? It's a single digit percentage point. Cut to the chase here. The punchline is, is that it shows, they're showing that it takes around 26 days for a new patient to get an appointment with a provider. Wow. That's like almost a whole calendar month that we're talking about here, Reed. 26 days. 26 days. No wonder like some of these entrants into the marketplace like Amazon Virtual Care and others, you know, the the urgent cares, et cetera, are, are having such a heyday here. That's a long time if you're a parent trying to get a new appointment even think about like second opinions, right? I know we're not getting quite that nuanced here. We'll go through some of the numbers and that type thing. But, you know, 
it's not exactly uh, awesome to sit around and, and think about something for 26 days while waiting to get in. Let's be clear here. What they're defining an appointment wait time as the time it takes for a patient to get a medical appointment on the calendar. That could be anywhere. If they start online or if they call a call center, whatever it might be, it takes 26 days regardless. That's average across all specialties. But the study went a little bit deeper. If you're in the Pacific Northwest, not great for you. I'm sorry. Uh, It's a beautiful place, I'm sure, to live. But Portland, Oregon, for example, 45.6 days. They have the highest average physician appointment wait time across all five of the kind of these major specialties that they looked at in, in the survey. Almost 46 days. Wow. Month and a half. Now, I will say that, unfortunately... My market that I'm in was number two. The lowest wait time was happened to be on the East Coast in New York. A lowest average there, 17.4 days across all five specialties. You think that's because of the density and like teaching hospitals and that kind of thing? I'm just, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't have an answer. I'm just curious. I think there's a lot of things that kind of play into the factor of why there's high and low wait times across all these different areas. But I think that is part of that, right? There are there are more physicians, probably a higher concentrate of physicians and a higher concentrate of health systems that kind of serve the New York marketplace, so to speak. Let's break down wait times, though, by specialty type, Reed. Yeah, so quickly, uh, top, uh, well, not top of the list, but first one on the list, I should say, uh, by alphabetical order, uh, cardiologist or cardiology appointment, 26.6 days. I guess that's not good news if you just recently got diagnosed with uh, like a heart murmur or something of that nature and you're concerned. Okay, so dermatologist alphabetically next in the list is 34.5 days. So if you have a weird like skin rash, you have to wait just a little over a month to go see a dermatologist. Yeah, that's not not great. Considering that's such a like what we consider like a very much consumer driven, you know, you could go to other non-medical intervention for dermatology and probably get in a lot quicker. So the next two I, I want to point out because they somewhat seem like in a similar category, but but are different from a weight perspective. So family medicine or kind of a general physician, 20.6 days. But a lot of times that family medicine or kind of general practitioner for a female is their OB-GYN, right? In, in a mm-hmm. lot of cases. And so OB-GYN, 31.4 days, so a month. Wow. And orthopedic surgery, must be a lot of them out there because their wait time on average across all markets is only 16.9 days. Now, we know that part of this is provider workforce. That's an issue that's you know impacting this. That's definitely a topic that we need to go deeper into. But the other thing could also be in the shifts in payment methods. And the, this article highlights that the number of providers accepting both Medicare and Medicaid is going down. In 2022, 82% of physicians in those 15 major metropolitan markets that accept Medicaid is down from 84.5% in 2017, down about 4% over the last five years. They go on to say that although on the rise, the number of physicians accepting uh, Medicaid is still low, only at 54.1%. Insurance accepted is is a critical piece, obviously, of patient care. And if a clinician doesn't accept your insurance plan, you have less options. Those of us that are commercially insured through our through our employer are probably in better shape than most, certainly. 
But I, I know even around here, being somewhat new to the area a few years in, I don't really count the pandemic, so I still feel like we're kind of new to the area. You know, it's still hard to get in places, right? And uh, here we are in Nashville, which is the center of uh, for-profit hospital systems. And so there's plenty of options. It's just in, in physicians and things like that, it's still just hard to get in. Before we leave this part of the conversation read and get into the next segment, we went to the study itself, which we'll also link to in the show notes, not just this uh, article that talks about the study. And they outline a couple of factors. Let's just hit them point by point really quick, just so you kind of understand what's driving this lag in wait times. First of all, according to a June 2021 report from the Association of Medical Medical Colleges, the U.S. is facing a deficit of up, of up to 124,000 physicians. That's projected by 2034. So there's a staffing shortage. And at what point, so I've been doing this for 20 years, I have yet to not hear these stats on an annual basis, <laughs> physicians and nurses. Point is that just is what it is, kind of a thing. So obviously, uh, less physicians. Conversely, a growing population. So the U.S. Census Bureau projects that the nation's population will grow from 332 million today. Oh boy, to 423 million by 2050. Wow. So we're going to go up. I mean, I'm okay at bath. But somewhere around a hundred million people. Yeah, is right. Yeah, in the next twenty-five years. Oh my word, that's a lot. And not only that, this population is getting older. By twenty thirty-four, there's going to be more seniors aged sixty-five and older than people seventeen and younger in the United States. Read. This is the first time in our nation's history the demographic imbalance like this will occur. Sorry, I'm just making a note here to buy land. <laughs> Uh, also an aging workforce, an aging physician workforce to be specific. So over 30% of physicians in active patient care are 60 or older and are expected to retire here pretty soon. Kind of along those same lines, physician burnout. So many of these docs are accelerating their retirement plans due to the burnout. So in 2019, prior to COVID-19, the Harvard Chan School of Public Health identified physician burnout as a public health crisis. And the pandemic, you can imagine, has only exacerbated the problem, they say. And we're not getting any healthier as a population. Four in 10 U.S. adults have two or more chronic conditions, according to the CDC. And then there's two more, it paints a grim picture here. Obviously, a limited number of new physicians. In fact, in 1997, Congress placed a cap on funding for physician training, which limits the number of new physicians entering into practice each year. Now, we lifted that cap in 2021, but they only provided funding for only about 1,000 more new positions, which is not going to meet our demand. Isn't that just a funnel? Like we quit putting stuff into the top of the funnel, so you're going to have a gap at some point coming from the bottom, right? Kind of a ripple effect. And, and then finally, the changing, you know, ideas or styles in, in physician practice. So more physicians are choosing to work as employees rather than independent practice owners. And, and just as an aside, I mean, this was probably, gosh, six or eight or I don't know, maybe even 10 years ago. I remember a CEO in Texas telling me that every time a doctor retires, he has to hire two to replace that doctor. 
because they don't want to take call. They don't want to work on the weekends. You know, all the stuff that like any normal person, would be like, yeah, I don't really want to do that. Well, all the older physicians, that's what they did. Like they, they worked a million hours, worked on the weekends, made house calls, especially in these small towns, you know. And so trying to recruit folks to a small town, get them to work the hours that the retiring doc does, it's just, it's just a losing battle. Now we painted a grim picture as we, we kind of do sometimes read it. We're going to take a brief pause here. And when we come back, you and I are going to talk about some ways that health systems and ourselves were trying to approach and address this situation. And we'll do that right after this brief pause. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. So we have a problem in the United States. We have a lot of patients waiting to see doctors. And quite frankly, we have a lot of factors today that's painting a bleak picture about how it's going to get better. But the good news is there are organizations, and we, you and I both read, are also working towards trying to help solve this problem and actually making convenience and access something that is much more commonplace with how people interact with us. Our next article on the list from medcitynews.com. So automated patient tracking reduces wait times and builds loyalty. Sounds promising. It does. And this is an overview from Ramon Rivera, who's the executive director of consumer access at Avent Health. And he kind of goes down the path that he took with his organization to reduce wait times. So let, let's go through that, Reed. So it talks in here first about that, you know, you really need to take inventory uh, and understand uh, what meets and, ex- and a lot of times exceeds the expectations. That is most commonly a predictable experience. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is, um, I think that's an interesting way to think about that, though, is, is you know, serving up the expectation that is, that is there. Um, uh, he talks in here about the fact that, you know, consumers don't see how real-time patient tracking helps departments communicate better but it has an outsized effect on their uh, experience. I think that's an interesting point that that article just made, because if you think about it, Reed, there's a sort of this adage of if you measure it, then you're keeping track of it, and then you'll improve it. And that's the whole point here is that once you start to track it, then you start to identify and recognize it. And that's the approach that they took at Advent Health to kind of go down that path. Now, I know that it, ourselves, we are tracking wait times of our urgent care centers across the organization. And that does also have that same kind of effect. We put it on our websites, but I tell you, the people that know the wait times that are published on our websites are much fewer patients and much more the urgent care managers are watching this, right? They're keeping track of time, so to speak. 
So a couple of things that, that impact that. A dated process. I mean, I would say that covers a lot of things that we do, right? <laughs> prior, he talks to you prior to, you know, to implementation to track average wait times, they used a manual outdated process that relied on an Excel spreadsheet with complex formulas. Sounds somewhat familiar. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot of things, a lot of Excel documents flying around. Um, the limitation <laughs> of the old process included, obviously, they have to manually enter you know, check in, check out times and goal tracking. I can only guess, even with the best of intentions, you know, how that's hard to combat, you know, errors or people just going quick and forgetting and are typing in the wrong thing or, or whatever, right? So it's like, well, how do you know? There's no way to know if things are right or wrong or it's just inefficient. I was talking to a clinic the other day and they said, well, can't we just share with you, you know, every 15 minutes? what our wait time is, and then you could publish it on the website. And I was thinking, are you asking me to dedicate an entire web person to just sit there and manually put in your wait times? You have to automate it. And, and that's what the, the kind of the path they took. After they realized that they're tracking everything in Excel spreadsheets, they realized they had to pilot a program to do that. What they did is they started to look at designing what that automated solution could be. What they were looking at is the ability to track the patients throughout the entire episodic event. That's an important piece here. They were looking at episodic events. Okay. And they found real-time patient status alerts for patients and approved caregivers at registration, relevant service areas, and beyond. So they had to find out where those systems are in order to track that information. Then they developed a coordinated tracking across multiple departments, and I would assume also multiple systems to get there. That led to the second half of the solution. Patient status integrated with waiting room monitors. So this idea, I guess, that you can actually display that information somewhere uh, so people can stay up to date. And the coordination and communication between each patient contact. I mean, the amount of change management that would go into this, I'm sure, is not insignificant. And then ultimately, staff alerts through text or email and wait time thresholds are exceeded. So that's interesting that they're, they're, they're finding ways to actually communicate with the staff around you know, where things stand. That was the important part of this, right? It was a two-pronged approach, one to communicate to the staff and one to communicate to the patient. Obviously, they found that creating this experience was helpful for patients. They liked it. They, they enjoyed it. They liked knowing where they were in their entire queue. But the software could also provide that historical reporting, which became very valuable for them at the clinical level to assess the patient access, right? And try to determine like, oh, our, match that against our staffing levels or match it against other kind of trends to kind of build proactive monitoring and overall improvement of the way they were able to track patient flow from beginning to end. This is a lot like a lot of things, right? Where technology itself can do a lot, but I think it's just interesting to think about how much change management or human interaction still happens in here, or you know, process change, or kind of however you want to bucket that. So I think it's it's easy to it's easier maybe to go find you know a hardware solution or software solution. I think about project management. Right. Like you can get all kinds of cool tools, but unless people use them, it's not terribly impactful. That hits a nail on the head, Reid. The technology is only the enabler of the change, 
that you're trying to accomplish. And they started off with one department to do this. And over time, they built a very effective solution. And then it became great for them to scale it. And one of the things that that, uh, Ramon points out here is that the service lines are now approaching them to determine whether or not to use this platform that they that they created. So that shows that, you know, this is effective. If you have a service line coming to you proactively and saying, hey, I want to use this in my orthopedic practice or in my neuroscience practice or whatever it might be, that's a really good win overall. That reinforces that doctors really love this solution. But ultimately, it's about the patient experience, right? Yeah, it is. They, they, he even mentions in here the fact that longtime patients who maybe even previously felt uh, disconnected internally now receive details as they move through their care journey, which includes wait times, you know, all the way from registration to discharge, but that that loyalty uh, as a consequence has improved, which is a critical piece as you think about, you know, kind of uh, retention and leakage as it um uh, relates to caring for your community and even population health or care gap initiatives. I think that brings forth this, this concept, Reed, that even though you may be struggling with long wait times or it might be, an, uh, let's say, unideal, your wait times, the more you can be transparent to the patient, that could still be a potential opportunity to improve patient loyalty and patient experience, at least if they know where they're at and they know that you're reminding them of like, oh, we know you're 15 minutes away from, you know, going to surgery or whatever it might be, right? Whatever that step may be, it improves the overall experience. Let's take another brief pause here. We'll come back and then we're going to get into a, a thought piece that a physician was thinking about six principles to improve access. And this is, gets into the whole concept of around not only just measuring, but a framework, so to speak, that we can apply to the way we think about wait times. And uh, we'll do that right when we come back from this short pause. All right, Chris. So what do we do about wait times? I, you know, I, my vote is uh, outdoor billboards that have the wait time on them. Yeah, just like right outside the front door. And it just says, before you come in, remember, we're running 35 minutes behind. That's right. <laughs> no. But only let it hold a two-digit number. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and 99 minute, 99 plus minutes. Uh, no, it, there actually is a lot of, when you think about it, it's not only change management as you were referring to before, Reed. There's a lot of like system thinking that goes into this. And no surprise that there are people that have been thinking about this, people much smarter than you and I. In fact, MDs have been thinking about this. And they're really thinking about the principles for improved access. And so the last article that we're going to get into is a piece that basically talks about that, how to shorten wait times. Yeah, absolutely. And so this article actually comes from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, which that would that would make a lot of sense. Articles titled uh, Shortening Wait Times, Six Principles for Improved Access. Let's jump into these. First one they talk about is understanding the balance between supply and demand. This is really important, right? Because we talk about this in marketing all the time relative to like, hey, listen, we don't want to advertise this service line, if you will, or this service or screening or whatever it is. If it takes forever to get into, you know, you're just, you're just advertising a bad experience. 
one of the main uh, folks here, Mark Murray, is a physician that, that really kind of uh, spent some time diving into this, says uh, if we can get a balance between the demand for appointments and the supply of appointments, then you can kind of understand where you are and potentially eliminate those wait times, right? Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, that sounds really simplistic, though. That formula is pretty complex. I would imagine if someone tried to draw out that formula mathematically, that has a lot of variables built into it. But this is really about uh, creating a system that works dynamically, not creating one that is basically say urgent goes here, uh, non-urgent goes this way. Yeah, I mean, an interesting call out here is you know, talk about the fact that you know how external demand, internal demand, contribute to the whole picture. Primary care physicians don't have much control over external demand. So, for example, when patients decide they are sick or need to be seen. Internal demand, however, is more controllable. It's created by a doctor who brings patient back for repeat visits and, or checkups. You use the internal demand to, to load level and you bring patients back at times during the day when demand is predictably lower. So early mornings or late in the week. You know, I think about like, you know, preventative or well check type things, right? Like real physical or even digital mammography or things like that, where you could potentially say, especially if it's a, a patient that's already connected into the system, um, we know who your physician is. We know when they have availability. So again, that's kind of that demand forecasting or load balancing or say in here, load leveling or something like that. So again, you know, knowing that you've got ex- external uh, pieces that you can't predict. What do you do with the, the parts that you can? Right. And I would say one last thing about this point is this is probably the place where we have a lot of historical data that can help inform the current state. We are tracking the number of patients that are coming through. We are also tracking the number of physicians that we have on staff. That data can be very easily identified and, and tracked into historical tracking. So now that we understand that balance between demand and supply, the second point that he brings forward is you have to recalibrate the system. That means getting rid of the backlog, or as he calls it, draining a lake or emptying a warehouse, so to speak. What he means by that is figuring out how much work is coming in each day and allowing to do more stuff for a period of time to catch up. So again, looking at your historical data and recalibrating the system to say on Thursdays, we happen to have a heavier patient load in this clinic. So we need to have more physicians there on that day or so to speak. A very simple kind of drawn out understandable uh, calibration of our existing system. So also talks in here about uh, queuing, uh, applying queuing theory, uh, which I think is interesting. So it says in here, if you can reduce the number of queues or lines, you can actually reduce the time it takes in total waiting inside the system, right? He talks about he talks about banks and grocery stores and all that kind of stuff. I don't care which analogy you pick. I'm always in the wrong line. But <laughs> the idea, though, is 
you know, if you can picture the grocery store, you get in a line, there's a clerk up at the front. You have no idea how, how the clerks vary and, and you know, you, you may be in a line longer, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. However, if you can get in like in a, at a bank, potentially, uh, especially inside, not outside, inside the bank, has anybody been inside of a bank? I'm not sure a good analogy, but anyway, <laughs> if you're inside of a bank, there's typically one line, right? That feeds a number of tellers or people at the at the desk. So it's just like I'll take next, 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 you know, and you kind of go to the next person. You're not stuck in one line waiting on this one per, you know teller, and you don't know what's in front of you, kind of a thing. Ultimately, there's a chance to to better uh, load level, as they call it in here. Uh, if you can get away from these queues and have everybody kind of in, in one hopper. That, what's interesting is that that means having a single point in for all appointments will help you better with load leveling. So that kind of focuses in on this concept of a maybe a, a centralized access center to kind of help load level. The other thing they talk about here is that in healthcare, we tend to have several different appointment types some for physical exams, some for regular procedures, pap smears, whatever. And the problem is, is that we're trying to map people to those specific types of appointment types. And so that means open availability of those very specific niche appointment types is difficult. And you may have open slots and no one uses them. So that's how we get variation, which means ultimately leading to longer wait times. There is a way where you can actually start to shift the way you're doing that. It's not possible to completely eliminate variability, but one of the things, you know, as you think about primary care appointments, for example, do you have to differentiate between a a physical checkup versus a regular checkup versus a health checkup, et cetera? I, I know the systems want you to kind of stratify those into different variations, but if you can make them all the same, then you can start to accomplish more at once. Next on the list, creating contingency plans. So there's demand variation, he says, and there's supply variation. And so the contingency plan deals with addressing, you know, how do we how we manage those uh, you know predicted variations in a predetermined manner. Seems like a lot of predicting and predetermining in one sentence, but <laughs> we're prepared to deal with the variation rather than react to it. So practices, he says, should ask. You know what are we what are we going to do if there's a variation in supply uh, or a variation in demand? So what doctors think season like seasonally, right? Like the flu, for example, they call it here, is a result of uh, some increased demand, but it's likely due to a decrease in supply. So you know, you, you can kind of predict this, right? If if you know certain things happen at a certain time of year, you know, back to school physicals would be another one, for example. You may look at, well, how are people taking vacation or how do we backfill with other uh, supply, right, or something like that? Absolutely. The fifth out of his six uh, principles is around influencing the demand. Okay, this is where marketing comes into play to a certain extent. But it also, your physician-to-physician relationship, that is a big part of this too. When patients make up their own rules about seeing their providers, there are less visits and there's less time with each visit. That relationship results in not only reduced visits, but a better clinical outcomes and lower system costs, they say. But continuity is really the key. And that's really where specialists have to come into play. Specialists already have continuity in the work that they do. 
But specialists are often asked to do work that could actually be done by somebody else within the system. He actually puts forward, this guy Murray says, that the development of service agreements between primary care and specialty care is a strong way to reduce demand for specialty care. And that's interesting because there's often a little bit of a tension between primary care and specialty care about who does what. In his experience, he says, creating these service agreements helps to define who does what, helps to load balance, and ultimately leads to a better referral process as well as a better actual load balancing and ultimately better experience for the customer. You know, think about the next time you're in a conversation with maybe primary care versus specialty care to say who identifies who's a candidate for surgical weight loss versus medical weight loss. Maybe it makes sense to have that conversation with the right people and develop sort of a service level agreement between the two entities. Finally on the list, managing the constraints. So the constraints in a system are the rate limiting step, he explains, and they ought to be the providers. So in a private practice, things can only move as fast as the doctor-patient relationship. So the trick here, he says, is to take the unnecessary work from the constraints or elevate the care team so that they can be uh, appropriately allocated to them. So this frees up the provider to work uh, is they are uniquely uh, in, in essential for. So this is the this this is that adage that you know have people practicing at the top of their license, you know, kind of a thing. Uh, again, if there are things uh, around discharge or planning or scheduling or follow up or prescription refills or whatever that you can move off to other entities, then that um, frees up some of those constraints. So. Good article, though. Good article. Yeah, really interesting. We went a little bit deep into like uh, understanding queuing theory, but ultimately what we're trying to do is actually understand the entire system. And I think that, Reed, as you and I think about it from a digital perspective and a digital experience perspective, the more we think about the larger system and the integration of that system, I think the better off we are, right? But it's a higher challenge for us. We'll take one last pause, Reed, and then we'll be back to close out the show. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right. Well, I hope everybody found that uh, found that interesting. I know wait time is something we've talked about from a marketing standpoint, but it's typically just communicating what is the wait time. So hopefully this gives a little more context and some ideas around what we can do to to better serve those that we're, we're aligned with. So, all right. Uh, another quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health and the TPS report. Um, I know, Chris, you just mentioned uh, some conferences and Shishman and all that kind of fun stuff. we got the Healthcare and Internet Conference coming up soon. And I uh, would encourage people to check that out. It's also noted in the TPS report. So you should be able to click through from there. All right. Let's do some uh, recommendations. What do you got today? 
Read. I'm going to recommend a podcast that's kind of a fun uh, listen. It It's not news. It's not about our industry or whatever. It's just one that I listen to whenever I want what I call bubblegum for my brain. Yeah. It's called Newcomers. And what it is, is there's two people, uh, Nicole Byer, who's a comedian. She's also happens to be host of Nailed It on uh, Netflix, which is a cooking show. And then an actress called Lauren Lapkus. And together what they do is they do deep dive into various different cultural staples, as they call them, that are in our zeitgeist. They're, neither one of them are nerdists or they're, they're not into the different things, but they have done multiple seasons. One season, they did a deep dive into the Star Wars universe. Another time, they did a deep dive into Lord of the Rings and even Tyler Perry's body of work. They they did one season dedicated to the Fast and Furious. The most recent season that they do is a deep dive into Marvel Cinematic Universe, the MCU. And basically what they do is they watch either television programs or movies, and then they do kind of commentary. And it's totally hilarious. They bring on guests, and they make fun of different things. They make different types of commentary. And I tell you, it's kind of fun. I mean, it's not one that you want to do a deep dive listen, because I tell you, each episode could be well over an hour, but if you're looking for something that's, again, chewing gum of your brain, I would recommend the Newcomers podcast. It's kind of fun, and it's just kind of a lighthearted way to view society and the things that I tend to like a lot. So that's my recommendation. Cool. That sounds great, man. Uh, I'm actually going to recommend an app called uh, Blink, B-L-I-N-Q. Oh. Uh, this is a digital business card, if you will. So you plug in all your information, it generates a QR code. And so if you're at an event and somebody wants your information, they can just scan the QR code and they, they get it right. So it's, you can plug in and it's free. Uh, there is a paid version, but the free version you could have, you know, name and title and email and phone and all that kind of fun stuff, including other links to things like LinkedIn and Twitter and, and et cetera. You, there is a paid version that allows you to have multiple business cards, for example, and, and that kind of thing. You can add it to your watch, your Apple watch, you know, where people can just scan the code, but it's, it's cool. And it's pretty handy as, as people are starting to make their way back to conferences. It may be uh, maybe something worth checking out called Blink. I am going to check that out. Really cool. Yeah. Good recommendation. Yeah. Well, thanks, everybody. Thanks for joining. Thanks for uh, passing the info along to friends and family. We certainly appreciate all the support. Uh, we would love for you to reach out to us. Uh, LinkedIn is probably the best way to do that. And uh, we certainly appreciate you joining us for yet another week of Touch Points. Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next time. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.